So thankful for an opportunity to just kind of posture our hearts and get our minds right as we approach the Word of God. It's impossible after, well, it's not impossible, but it should be to sing that kind of song and then to come up here and, and trifle with the Word. So if you're new with us, I uh, just want to let you know that this is Grace Church Monterey Bay. Um, we love the Lord. We love you. We're thankful that you're here. And uh, it is our hope this morning that you do hear from God directly from his word. If you remember, please pray for us, uh, the group of men that are going down to Shepherd's Conference. Um, it's going to be a great time. There's nothing more thrilling than gathering with thousands of men and singing songs uh, just like that and so many others. Uh, it's going to be encouraging to sing, to spend time with one another in fellowship, uh, to sit under the word. Uh, I don't know how much longer we have uh, with Dr. John MacArthur. That's not to scare anyone. I think he's healthy. I just saw him a few weeks ago. Uh, his mind is as sharp as ever, but the reality of we've lost people. Uh, we've lost R.C. Sproul. Um, we've lost other faithful men of God, and so I just value Pastor John, love him very much. He's been so influential to me, to my wife, um, and so we just uh, want to capitalize on an opportunity to go and hear with him and so many others there at Grace Community Church. Well, if you've been to the Avila home um, for a Taco Tuesday, we've not only treated you to some tacos, but you've been drilled by our kids. Our kids, they love to ask questions. We're trying to teach them uh, the art of conversation and so one of the things that they do is they just ask questions. And so you uh, will get bombarded with some favorite questions, like what's your favorite food, and what's your favorite animal, and what's your favorite location, and what's your favorite superpower, and on and on it goes with what's your favorite. But they also ask questions to engage. And one of the questions is, when you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? And I love that question. It's a great conversation starter. And We've had lots of good dialogue about that. But one of the questions that I want to add to their repertoire is not what did you want to be when you grow up, but who did you want to be like when you grew up? For, for some of us, we wanted to be like mom or be like dad. Others, we wanted to be like an older sibling. Uh, for some of us, we wanted to be like our favorite athlete, maybe a movie star. Maybe it was a teacher or a coach. When you were young... Who did you say you wanted to be like when you grew up? For me, my, my list is, uh, I think, pretty sweet. Shogasugi, who was a ninja, I wanted to be like him. I wanted to fight like Bruce Lee. I wanted to have muscles like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I wanted to score the basketball like Michael Jordan. I wanted to have court vision like Magic Johnson. I wanted to play chess like Bobby Fischer. Um, one guy that I didn't want to be like was Mr. Rogers. Not, not because I didn't respect Mr. Rogers, I just never watched Mr. Rogers. And in fact, when I was young, I wasn't thinking about like personality or character. I just wanted like the skills. It wasn't until I got into high school where I started to want to be like people because of who they actually were. We had a guy on our campus at uh, St. John Bosco High School. His name was Jelani Gardner. And maybe some of you don't know that name, but back then his name was big time. He was one of the best point guards behind Allen Iverson, who was also in high school during that time. And Jelani was 6'6 point guard, nationally ranked, on television, in newspapers. I mean, this guy was amazing. And he was at my school. He was a junior when I was a freshman. 
And I just thought Jelani was so cool. But, but the cool thing about Jelani was just how personable he was. Uh, he was, he, he had this like larger than life personality. And yet at the same time, he would come and give you a handshake or give you a high five. I thought that to be cool, you had to kind of look down on people and think that people weren't good enough to talk to you. But Jelani would be in the hallways giving teachers hugs, talking to little freshmen like me, giving high fives. And I remember saying, I want to be like this guy. He's just so cool. He's so cool. Who are the people that you have followed? Who are the people right now, currently, that you're following and trying to model your life after? Well, the Apostle Paul here in this section provides us with some real practical helps for doing what he just called us to, to press on toward the goal of the upward call of Christ. And what he says is there's examples that God has given for you to follow. So how are we going to continue to grow in this pursuit of intimacy and this imitation of the Lord? And we can easily say the obvious answer is read this book, read the scriptures, pray, and that's good. But is that enough? I would say that God has intentionally and creatively and purposely provided us with the church so that we can watch others and model our lives after them as we pursue Christ's holiness. There's so much we learn from observing other people's lives. We learn good, but we also learn bad. Because not all models are built the same, and many of you know this. Not all models bring blessing. There are actually some professing believers that we need to be aware of. Here at Grace Church Monterey Bay, I mean, we've read our doctrinal statement. We talk about our mission statement. We have a good theological foundation. Uh, Nick and I, as the pastors, elders, um, we're committed to biblical inerrancy, the authority of Scripture. Uh, We're going to teach the Word So I'm not necessarily concerned about our our beliefs as much as I'm concerned about are we living out the beliefs that we have? Are we living what is true? And that's that's what's at stake here in these verses. So follow me now as I read Philippians 3. We'll start in verse 13 and we'll go through verse 19. God's word to us says this. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, think this way. And if in anything you think differently, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep walking in step with the same standard to which you we have attained. Brothers, join in following my example and look for those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even crying as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, and glory in their shame, who set their thoughts on earthly things. Oh, Father, would you please meet us right here. Help us to understand, to comprehend what your scripture is saying and respond appropriately. Respond in faith, in truth, in lives that are sanctified 
and set apart for your holy purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, here's our main idea. In Philippians 3, 15 through 19, Paul commands us to observe and follow after godly examples and to avoid following bad examples. Very simple. He's commanding us to observe and to follow after godly examples and then warning us not to follow after bad examples. So if there's one thing that I want you to walk away with this morning, it would be this. The footsteps you follow will lead you down a path to the person that you'll become. The footsteps that you follow will lead you down a path to the person you'll become. So the question I want you to keep thinking over and over as we move through this message is, who are you following? Whose life are you imitating? Whose pattern of life are you patterning your life after? You see, as believers, your behavior matters. So who you make your model and whose footsteps you follow will exponentially impact your life, both in the present as well as in the future. So here's the outline. I think it's coming just straight from the text. In verses 15 through 16, we're going to look at following God's example. In verse 17, follow godly examples. And then in verses 18 and 19, there's the examples not to follow. Those are the godless examples. God's example, godly examples, and don't follow godless examples. That's our outline. But go back with me just last week and recall from verses 12 through 14 that Paul has stressed not once but twice that he hasn't yet attained to perfection, that he's still on this journey. He's still moving forward. He's still positioning himself to to pursue the prize. And so when you think about that initial call, when God calls us, that's the starting gun. And we're on this race. And we're, we're, I don't know what lap we're on, but we're on a lap. And we're going and we're going and our eyes are set on the goal and on the prize. We're pursuing Christ. And the climax is the finish line when we will be ultimately in glory and away with sin and done with death and done with disappointment and despair and everything else that is in this world as a result of sin. But because Paul knows that he hasn't yet arrived, that propels him forward. And so he thinks correctly about where he's at spiritually and how much further he has to go. All that to say is the way that we think matters. Christian, your beliefs inform your behavior. The way that you reason determines how you run. And that's where Paul begins. He reminds us to think as God would have us think. So look there in verse 15. He says this, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, Think this way, and if anything you think differently, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep walking in step with the same standard to which we have attained. Now, those two verses, 15 and 16, it's just one sentence in the Greek, but it's extremely difficult to interpret because it's really hard to actually translate. Back in verse 12, he's already said something that seems interesting here. He said, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect. Tetalomai is the word he uses. But now here in verse 15, he uses that same root word, but instead of using the verb, he uses the adjective. And he says, let us as many as are tetalioi, perfect. So you'd say, wait a second, you just said that you you haven't 
become perfect, but now you say, let us who are perfect. And so we have to question Paul and say, what what are you talking about? How can you say you're not perfect? And then a few verses later say that you and others are perfect. Well, I think the answer is fairly simple. What Paul is talking about is positional perfection, positional righteousness, positional justification. We are perfect in the sense that God has imputed his perfect righteousness to us. So we're we're not perfect as it relates to sanctification. We still have room to grow. You can look at your spouse right now, and you can say, you're not perfect. And then they can say right back to you is, you're not perfect either. You can do that to your kids, your parents, your friends. We all know we're not perfect. We're in process. But when it comes to your perfection by way of Christ's imputed righteousness, well, there's no condemnation. Why? Because you're perfectly made righteous because of Christ's righteousness. And this is Paul's whole point. Look, my pedigree, my performance, all of my passion, all of that fell terribly short. All of what I put my hope in, trust in, that was all what Paul says was rubbish. If we want to be made right with God, we need him to provide the perfect righteousness. And he does that as a gift of grace, and it comes through faith in Christ. And so when we say we're pursuing the prize, what we're saying is we're pursuing righteousness. And another way to say that is we're really pursuing Jesus himself. He is our prize. He is our goal. He is our aim. He is the consummation. He's what our hearts desire. And so, again, he is not talking about practical perfection, but positional perfection. And his exhortation is, let us think this way. He's demonstrating that he, along with the church, needs to think along these lines. I haven't arrived, but I keep pressing on. I haven't become perfect, but I'm still running. Literally, it reads, let us keep setting our minds on. This is a favorite word of Paul. It is phanero, phanero. And we've seen it over and over again. So Paul's already talked about we need to have the same-mindedness. We need to have Christ-mindedness. We need to have singular-mindedness. All throughout the letter, he's always talking about the way that we think. Look back in chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul says, have this way of thinking. There's that same word, phanero. Have this same way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, some translations translate that as attitude, which isn't bad, but what Paul is saying is we need to have, church, the kind of intentional thinking that encompasses both our affections as well as our actions. So it's not just having mental gymnastics exercise. What he's saying is this involves our intellect, our desires, our will, and our actions That's the kind of thinking that God wants us to have. Keep on thinking this way. Keep your focus. Keep pursuing the prize. Keep running. Give it all you got. That is what correct thinking will do. If you think correctly, then Lord willing, you'll live correctly. Oftentimes when you fall into sin, you make mistakes, you hurt people. It doesn't start with the actions. It starts with how you were thinking. You are discontent, you are vindictive, you are angry, you are jealous, you are bitter. All the stuff that's going on in your head leads out into your actions and into your words. Well, what if Christians, what if they lose their focus? Do you lose your focus sometimes? Do you take your eyes off the prize? What do we do then? 
Well, look what Paul says next. If in anything you think differently, God will reveal that also to you. And that word you'll be familiar with, it's the same word where we get this apocalypse. Literally, it means to remove the cover to that which has been concealed. And what the scripture is teaching us here is that the whole idea of keeping our eyes on Christ and knowing where our righteousness comes from, that actually comes from God. You and I did not discover that on our own. We didn't figure out that in order to have a right relationship with God, that we need Christ's perfect righteousness. What you and I did was we try to be good. We try to not be bad. And we try to pursue Christ by our own human efforts. And what the scripture is saying here is, look, this was divinely revealed to you. And if you think wrongly about this as a believer, God, who is faithful, God, who has adopted you into his family, God will instruct you. This is why he's given you the spirit of God to teach you, to instruct you, to convict you. So the promise is from God that he will straighten out our thinking, that he will unravel all the knots and the confusion to help us see his grace and greatness more clearly. That's his promise to us. You see, the Word of God really is the primary means. This is why we preach it every week. The Word of God is the primary means by which God works in us to make us holy. You've heard me say this before. It's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God to make the people of God more like God. So any church service or gathering where the Bible is not at the forefront, what are we doing? This is where the power is. This is where the Spirit is working through the Word of God. So, Paul says, don't think that you've arrived yet. If you think differently, God will be faithful to correct that thinking. But now Paul continues. Look at verse 16. However, let us keep walking in step with the same standard to which we have attained. What is he saying there? He's saying, look, don't don't be distracted. Don't fall out of rank. All of our military folks will appreciate this. Keep marching. Be in step with one another. Keep the cadence. Keep the line. That's actually what the word means here, stokeo. We need seven English words to say this one Greek word. Seven English words. Let us keep walking in step. It's just one word in the Greek. The idea behind stokeo is that our Christian life is really a team effort. And this is beautiful. It's not a solo thing. You're not intended to pursue Christ all by yourself. Do you need to pursue Christ personally? Absolutely. But God has given you the people of God, the church. We're all marching to the same drum together towards spiritual maturity. That's what he means. Let us keep walking. We're to do this together, which means that If a brother is slowing down and he's getting distracted and he's wandering off, then we have a responsibility to put our arm around him and say, no, let's let's keep going. And if there's a sister who's discouraged and she's exhausted, or she's exasperated at just the trials of life, then we need to come alongside her and build her up and encourage her and help her keep pursuing the prize. If there's a young runner who just decides, I'm going to turn back, Oh, no, 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 no. We got to turn him around and direct him toward the prize. You know, early in our marriage, Jess and I, we took a, a, ballroom, a ballroom dance class at the local community college. Super cheap. It was like 20 bucks. It was like, oh, I'll do that. 
So we, we, we take this class, and um, we're, we're learning all these ballroom steps. And I go into this thinking, oh, I'm a, I'm a break dancer. I'm, a, I'm an athlete. I'm going to kill this thing. And I found out real quickly, I'm not good at dancing <laughs> at all. Um, it doesn't matter that you're athletic or it doesn't matter that you have rhythm in some things. You actually have to learn the steps. So tango, quick step, I have no idea what I'm doing. And it was kind of embarrassing because Jess was so far advanced from me. Like I couldn't even dance with my wife because I was like with, you know, <laughs> with, with the people who couldn't dance. If a dance is to be viewed as beautiful and enjoyable, then we need to be in sync. There needs to be a rhythm. You actually have to follow the instructor's instructions. And it's the same thing for our Christian walk. If we are to advance and grow in our maturity of Christ-likeness, if, if we're to look beautiful as the church is supposed to, then we need to walk in step with one another. So, we're to behave properly together. We're to conduct our standard of living as Christ has given to us in the scriptures, and we're to do that with one another. This is one of the beautiful one another's. We're to march on together, pursue together. So if we're to pursue Christ-likeness together, and if we're to grow in maturity, what we need is tangible, visible examples to follow. You've heard this axiom, I'm sure, before, that things are better caught than taught. Now, I can get up here and I can preach, and you can hear people preach on the radio and podcast, but there's something that is dramatically different when you actually see it lived out. And that's what Paul says here. He provides himself as a model for the church to follow. This leads us to point number two. Follow Paul's example in verse 17. Brothers, he says, join in following my example. Now, the first thing to notice is that this is not a suggestion. Paul is not just saying, hey, you can maybe follow after me. This is actually a command, but he commands it with brothers because he's like an older brother looking down at his younger siblings and he's showing them this way by example. He's not a slave master. He's not cracking the whip. He, with love and compassion, says, follow my example as I follow Christ. Now, the question for us is, well, why do we have to follow after Paul? Isn't he hijacking the glory of God by saying, follow me instead of following Jesus? Ephesians 5 and verse 1 says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. It seems like he got it right in Ephesians, but here he's not saying follow after God or follow after Jesus or follow after the Lord. He's saying, follow after me. And for some, they say, well, that, that sounds a little egotistical. But no, he's not putting himself on some sort of spiritual perfection pedestal. He's not being arrogant here. He's saying, no, no, no. I want you to join me as we follow after Christ. Follow me only so much as I follow Jesus. And the word that Paul uses here, it's a unique word. Not just in the New Testament, but all of Greek literature which means that Paul probably made it up. It's sum mimites, and in that you hear that word almost mimic, soon, together with. What he's saying is, together we mimic Christ. Together I want you to mimic me. Christians 
are to work together at mimicking the Lord, which means that you and I, we link arms and our hearts are like magnets and connect to one another as we pursue Jesus together. And if we're going to be salt and light in the world, if we're going to be a city set on a hill, if we're going to break through to the darkness, it's much better if we have a brighter light shining than little individual lights. Put us all together and see how we can impact this peninsula for Christ. You say, well, Paul, that's a good example, but isn't it better just to have the perfect example? Why not just say Jesus? Why don't we just follow Jesus? Jesus is perfect. Let's follow after him. Well, MacArthur, in his commentary on Philippians, he wisely points this out. He says this, Had Paul been perfect, he would not have been an example believers would follow. We need to follow someone who is not perfect so we can see how to overcome our imperfections. Someone who can show us how to handle the struggles of life, its disappointments, and its trials. Someone who can show how to handle pride and resist temptation and put sin to death. Now, Christ is the perfect standard, the perfect model, the perfect pattern for believers to emulate. But Christ never pursued perfection. He always has been perfect. Paul was a fellow traveler on the path toward the unattainable spiritual perfection and thus a model for believers to follow. He modeled virtue. Morality, overcoming the flesh, victory over temptation, worship, service to God, patient endurance of suffering, handling possessions, and handling relationships. You see, Jesus is a model that we we need to follow. He's perfect. But Paul is like us. Human, frail, faulty, sinful. He said, I am the chief of sinners. So he becomes a model for us to follow. And Paul is not being arrogant. He's saying, look, my life has been transformed. My my theology is sound. uh, And you can follow me as I follow Christ. He actually told Timothy, his young disciple, what specifically Timothy should be imitating. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said, but you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, and even persecution and suffering. Paul doesn't say, Timothy, you got to be exactly like me. You need to be a carbon copy of me. You need to have the same gifts and talents and experience as me. He doesn't say that. He says, but, but watch how I respond to life and trouble and persecution And imitate me, imitate my character, imitate my virtue, imitate my vitality, imitate my service and sacrifice, my devotion and dedication. Those are things that we can imitate from non-perfect people. But look, it's not just Paul and the Lord that believers are commanded to follow. The first imperative focuses on Paul. The second imperative here focuses on others. Look there in the text. He says, and look for those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul will say throughout his New Testament letters to follow in other people's example. He'll say us or we, or we set an example. In 1 Thessalonians 2.14, he says, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 3.17, he says here, the Philippians are to look for those who walk according to the pattern 
you have in us. Look back in verse 2 of chapter uh, 3. There Paul says that we're to look out for the dogs, for the evildoers, for the false circumcision, blepo, watch out, be on guard. Here, though, he uses the word skoipeo, which is where we get that word scope, like in microscope. And what he's saying is, in the present tense here, that you as a Christian need to be on a careful lookout. You need to identify people in your congregation that you can model your life after. And the assumption here is that it's not going to be super easy to find, that you actually have to go and look, which means you have to spend time with others. You have to be observing how people are living, how husbands are treating their wives, how parents are parenting their kids, how singles are staying away from temptation. You have to be up close and personal to observe these things from fellow believers. There's going to be times where someone comes to you and initiates and puts their arm around you and says, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. And we love that. But honestly speaking here, how often has it happened in your Christian life? How often have you had a woman come and just say, hey, I want you to spend some time with me. I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. And it's really easy for us to kind of get down, right? Because well, I don't remember the last time that happened. But the instruction here is for you to go pursue it, to seek it, to look for it, and to ask for it. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.7 that you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us and then in verse 9, he says, in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would imitate us. Imitation and modeling is what is supposed to happen in the church. It's a non-negotiable. But again, you might feel like, well, I don't, I don't have someone. I don't know someone. I, I don't have that kind of relationship. Well, let me give you what I think is a valuable list because maybe you're like, well, I've tried to be proactive in finding someone to disciple me. I've tried to be intentional about patterning my life after someone else, but I'm kind of unsure what to look for because um, that guy has issues or I, I don't like the way she handles this particular situation. And you know that we can keep making excuses to the point where we don't think anyone's qualified enough to disciple us. The only one that's going to like effectively disciple you is Jesus. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. So let me give you an A to Z of discipleship. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You say, Dom, what should I look for? And thank you for asking. It's right here, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Calling this the A to Z model worth following. A man or woman worth following. If you just read chapter 2, this is what pops out. They're going to be strong in the grace of Jesus Christ in verse 1. They're going to be a good listener in verse 2. A discerner of other people's character, especially someone's faithfulness, also in verse 2. They're going to um, be able to endure suffering like a good soldier, verse 3. They have a desire to please the Lord in verse 4. They follow God's instructions in verse 5. They work diligently, verse 6. 
They make sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom in verses 9 and 10. They die to self and live for Christ in verse 11. They refrain from useless arguments in verse 14. They demonstrate diligence. They seek God's approval, both in verse 15. They accurately handle the word of God in verse 16. They avoid worthless conversations. They turn from evil. They understand and pursue honor in verses 19 and 20. They prepare themselves for God's purposes, verse 21. They flee youthful lust, 22. They pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. They call on the Lord with a pure heart. They do not quarrel. They're kind to everyone. They're able to teach. They're patient when wronged. They're gentle in their correction. And they're trusting God's sovereign hand for salvation. Right there in chapter 2, you've got a great list. Who should you pursue? And you say, well, looking at that list, Dom, um, does someone have to have all of those qualities in order for me to be discipled by them and to learn from them and model my life after them? And again, I would just say, you are not the perfect disciplee. Don't expect the perfect discipler. You, you find something on that list and say, hey, this person excels here. Let me learn a little bit from them in this area. And let me learn from this person in, in this area. And this is how the church works. Some of us have strengths in certain areas. Others, others have weaknesses. Well, let's learn from one another's strengths. And let's try to sharpen and refine those weaknesses by being with one another. Now, why... Do you think here Paul takes this imitation of Christ and others who follow him so seriously? And the answer to that is because the Christian life, it's, it's challenging. We just don't wake up and automatically we're just going to be spiritually mature. It, it really is a race. It is a pursuit. And along this path, you realize this, there's pitfalls. There are. There are pitfalls and there's also predators. Look at the next word he uses here. It's a connecting word. Four, And this leads us to point number three. Don't follow bad examples in verses 18 and 19. Why? Paul says here, he gives the purpose statement, For many walk, of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even crying that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And this is sad because Paul says, for many. He doesn't say a couple. He doesn't say a few, he doesn't say a handful, but he says there that there are many who are enemies of the cross. And the sobering truth is that this is what the scriptures teach. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, it says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. Again, if the Christian life is hard, if it's a challenge, if it's a wrestling match, a boxing match, a race, it's difficult. And some people will be unwilling to stay on the track because it's hard. And Paul says there are many who abandon. They jump ship. Not only that, but Jesus says, beware of false prophets in Matthew chapter 7, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And he says, you will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear 
bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And then he says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And then here comes this serious statement in verse 21. And we need to read this, not thinking about other people, but thinking about our own selves. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And then here it is, verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, in your name do many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So some of the scariest verses in Matthew chapter 7, and it's a call for us to examine. Who are we following? What kind of fruit are we producing? This thought that many have rejected Christ brings Paul to tears. Look at what it says here. He says, I'm telling you this while even crying. And the significance about this is that this is the only place in the New Testament where it says that Paul was actually weeping. He's shedding tears while he's writing. And it's not like he just kind of threw that in there, whether he has an amanuensis who's, who's copying this down for him or Paul is writing it himself. He didn't like, oh, I think I'll kind of insert right here. Yeah, I'm kind of crying. Now, as he's thinking about people and their faces and he's remembering relationships, people who call themselves Christians but have walked away, it's actually bringing Paul to literal weeping. You say, well, why, why is he really weeping here? Well, first, I think he feels a deep pain in his heart because he wishes this not, were not the case. How do we really know the heart of Paul? Well, in Romans chapter 9, he says this, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. You'll remember this. He says, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And he even said, if it were possible, I wish that I myself would be accursed so that my countrymen, my fellow Jews, would not go to hell. That's the kind of heart that Paul had. You will never find a godly person glorying in someone going to hell. Never. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus himself is looking at Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you did not want it. Jesus' heart, Paul's heart, they're not rejoicing that people are on the road to destruction, but they're grieved, sorrowful, weeping. I think another reason why Paul is weeping here is because he realizes the kind of impact, the kind of havoc that false teachers have on individuals, because it's not just the individual, but it's their spouse, it's their children, it's generations that follow. And Paul realizes the kind of damage that these professing nominal Christians, the kind of bad example they are. They don't even have to get up and preach. It's not like they have to be in a pulpit. It's just their lifestyle, and people begin to pattern their lives after those lives, and that leads to destruction. And so Paul, he weeps. He's not nonchalant, but he's devastated at their destiny. 
You know, I very much dislike when people go out and evangelize or they stand at the abortion clinic and they're holding up signs, God wants you to burn in hell, you deserve to go to hell. Look, we're to warn people, but we're not to wish that on anybody. We're to plead with people to repent, to turn to Christ. That is the message of the gospel. We don't delight in people's destruction. Well, the reason why they were lost, it says right there, was because they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, what does Paul mean by they're enemies of the cross? Certainly, he's not talking about the wood, the planks. The cross of Christ is what the death of Jesus represents. The cross is a symbol. So when we say the cross, we think of sacrifice, salvation, substitutionary atonement, self-denial, suffering. That's what the cross represents. In Philippians 1.27, Paul says that we are to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the sacrifice, worthy of Christ laying down his life. If we don't live in a manner worthy of the cross, then we bring shame upon the cross. If our lives are not compatible with what took place on the cross, then we dishonor Jesus and the cross. You see, there is no neutrality. You say, well, I'm not doing anything to necessarily dishonor God, but if you're not doing anything with God, for God, in God's name, you're dishonoring him. If you're ignoring God, that is dishonoring him. There is no neutrality. You're either a friend or a foe. For both the men and the women we've been studying in Titus, listen to what Titus says in chapter 2. He says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he died to set you free from sin. But if you're still embracing sin and petting sin, you're a foe. You're not a friend. Jesus died to give us freedom. And if we just willingly want slavery again, you're not a friend. You're a foe. Jesus died so that you can boldly approach the throne of grace in prayer. But if you're prayerless and you don't speak to God, again, you are not a friend but a foe. Jesus died to remove the blinders of your eyes so that you can see the truth of God in his word. But if this book always stays closed and you never read it and you don't obey it, then do not think that you are a friend of God. You are a foe. Jesus died to ensure that we are one even as he is one. And if you come to this church, or any church for that matter, and you cause dissension and division, you're not a friend, you're a foe. It's very simple. Jesus died to bring about our holiness. He wants your holiness. But if you're wholly committed to doing what you want, 
then why would you think you were a friend of Jesus? Don't make the mistake of thinking that an enemy or a foe is someone who is just violently opposed to Christianity. I think we think of guys like Richard Dawkins and, and others who are debating and, and trying to refute Christianity. Or we think that an enemy is someone like Hitler or people who rape or people who do all these bad things. But I think as you read this text, what Paul is saying is, no, 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 an enemy is someone who just doesn't live for the glory of God. You can be moral and be an enemy because you're trusting in yourself and your own righteousness. That is not a friend. That is a foe. So look, he's not uh, addressing someone who's aggressively antagonistic. These aren't atheists or anarchists. These aren't agnostics. Paul is weeping because these people claim to be Christians, but they weren't living like it. They became enemies of the cross of Christ, not because of the things that they believed, but because of the way that they behaved. And they didn't behave properly because the things they believed, they really didn't truly believe by faith. That's why James says, even the demons believe, and what do they do? They shudder. But there was no transformation. There's no heart change. The problem was that those beliefs did not turn into the right behavior. And a confession didn't lead to the right kind of conduct. Well, Paul now goes on to describe these enemies. And he gives these four descriptive and denunciatory statements. This is hard to hear because Paul is, again, he's writing in tears. But this is the reality. He starts off by saying this. They are going to hell. And it's almost shocking that he begins there. But he wants to jolt us. He wants to jolt us into to, to thinking that, man, this is serious. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, and they glory in their shame, who set their thoughts on earthly things. He begins with, they are going to hell. That's their final outcome. Their destiny is destruction. That word there is a contrast to what he says in verse 28 of chapter 1. He said that there's a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you. There's only two paths, two roads, two destinations. One is salvation, one is destruction. Hell is the destiny of all unbelievers. And when you read a passage like this, it's clear that this is reserved not just for the overly wicked, unrighteous people that we think of, but even people who sit in pews, who make a claim to Christ, who say they love Jesus, but they don't live like it. And that's terrifying and sobering. And Paul begins there. But look, he gives us more information. He says, it's not just that they're going to hell, but why were they going to hell? Why are they doomed for destruction? Because their God is their lust. He says, whose God is their stomach. Their principal aim is gratification for their own pleasure. They, they pamper themselves and pursue their own appetites. That's the characteristic that they have here. He's not referring to a literal belly. He's not saying that they're just gluttons. No, he's saying, no, they give in to their cravings, their physical appetites. They're sensual. They're impulsive. And they've raised these desires above obedience to Christ. 
See, a man's God is that which he gives himself to. A man's God becomes the determining factor of his life. So the thing that excites you and thrills you and and attracts you, as you pursue that thing and you pursue that thing in contrast to obedience to Christ, that thing has now become your God. It could be money. It could be sex. It could be popularity. It could be a number of things. But if you give yourself to that and want to satisfy your fleshly desire, you've made that thing your God. And you can't serve two gods. You're either going to love one and hate the other or vice versa. Turn with me to Romans 16. Romans 16 and verse 17. Because Paul, again, giving instructions to the church, tells us that we need to be on guard. We need to watch out for these particular kinds of people. He says there, Romans 16, verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but what does it say? But of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Be on guard. Watch for these kinds of people. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 9, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and snares and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. A characteristic of a false believer a characteristic of someone who's dangerous we need to watch out for is someone who just chases after their appetites, indulges in the flesh. Well, not only that, but it says here that they glory in their shame. And grammatically, this glorying is connected to the God being in their belly. Rather than being ashamed of things that they know they shouldn't do, they actually glory in it. They talk about it. They brag about it. They become arrogant. They're proud of their very perversion. And Paul says, look, we got to beware of those whose consciences have been so deadened and dulled and defiled that they're actually delighting in sin. They talk about the things they get away with. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, Paul says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts what? What translation do you have? Bad company corrupts what? Good morals good character. Listen, especially you young people, you think you're hanging out with someone cool, someone popular, someone who's liked, but if all they're about is sin, you're hanging with the wrong people. You think you're not going to be impacted by them. It's one thing to have an evangelistic zeal and to pursue them, but if you're hanging with them, looking like them, talking like them, drinking like them, smoking like them, having sex like them, whatever it is, they are leading you right to destruction. Paul says, you can identify them. Not only are they on the road to destruction, not only is God their appetite, or yeah, God their appetite, but they glory in their shame. Paul had strict and scathing words for the Corinthians in chapter five, where he says, look, there's sin going on. It's not even mentioned among the Gentiles. You're actually tolerating it. And by not saying anything, by not addressing it, you're actually condoning it. Rather than the Corinthian church taking that sin seriously, they remained silent and they were, I think, judged as a result as well. The enemies of the cross are 
bad examples because they ultimately go to hell. Their God is their appetite. They glory in their shame. And finally, he says their goal is this world. They set their thoughts on earthly things. Paul's mindset, Christ, his glory, the resurrection, the high calling. He knew where he was going. He had his eyes fixed, singular focus. These people, they don't want that. They want what the world has to offer. The entertainment, the fun, the acclaim, the popularity of the world, that's, that's what they want. Earthly things, characteristics of the present age, what provides the greatest satisfaction and enjoyment here on earth. You see, when people choose that, what they're saying is, God, you, your word, your sacrifice, I found something better. So no wonder their end is destruction. If they don't want God in this life, what makes them think that they're going to want God in the life to come? Romans 8, verse 5 and 8 reads this. For those who are according to the flesh, they set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. And Paul says in Colossians 3, 2, that Christians were to be different. We are to set our minds on things above, not on things here on earth. You've heard that saying, you cannot be, if you're heavenly minded, right? Uh, is, if you're heavenly minded, you could be no earthly good. The reality is, if we are heavenly minded, we will be earthly good. What's not true is the opposite. If our minds and our hearts and our affections and our desires and our pursuits are only here in this world, we're not going to be any heavenly good. We're not going to fulfill our mission. We're not going to pursue after Christ or get others to pursue him with us. So, godly example, godless example. We need to find the godly examples. We need to pattern our lives to be godly examples. We need to avoid, stay away from, and Lord forbid, us never become godless examples. The godly, they embrace the cross. The godless, they're enemies of the cross. The godly, their mind is focused heavenward on Christ. The godless, their mind is set on earthly things. The godly examples, they subdue their appetites. The godless enemies, they live to satisfy their appetites. The godly examples, they share in Christ's sufferings. The godless enemies, they just desire comfort and ease and satisfaction. The godly examples, they are waiting with longing for the resurrection body. But the godless enemies, they want to fulfill all their fleshly desires in the present, in the here, and now. And the most terrifying thing, there's only two ways. The godly examples, their path is salvation and righteousness and glory in Christ Jesus. And the godless enemies, their path is destruction and hell away from the presence of God forever. Do you see how tragic this downward spiral is? Desires, disgrace, degradation, destruction. And you say, well, hearing all that, how do I ensure that my final destination is not destruction? Well, you need to know that 
It needs to be more than a profession. You just can't profess it. You have to live it, depending on the power of the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The enemies are enemies of the cross. The Christians, we boast in the cross. Because at the cross, that's everything for us. All of our sins are forgiven at the cross. All of our former life is done away with at the cross. At the cross, we have the power. At the cross, we have the Spirit of God who enables us to live holy and godly lives. At the cross, we have relationship that's provided for us, the righteousness of Christ. Our life, Christian, is the cross. And it's not just the cross, because everything, as Nick said, was verified and vindicated in the resurrection, just as Jesus promised. So, let me begin with, or let me finish with how I began. What kind of models are you following? What kind of model are you to others? We have the Bible, we have prayer, but we need living, breathing, tangible examples. And the Lord has given you his spirit so that you can be an example to others to follow. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are so thankful that you have not left us to ourselves. I think of the Philippians who didn't have uh, all the New Testament letters. They couldn't just go to their parchments and to their scrolls and, and read everything that Paul wrote or John wrote or Peter wrote. In large part, they were dependent on guys like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus to be that example and model. And here we are, 2,000 years later, with a completed New Testament We've got both the old and the new. We've got the Spirit of God. We've got life on this side of the cross. God, you, in your word, say that you've given us everything for life and godliness. You've also given us the church, the beautiful church, the people of God. And Father, we thank you so much for those that have modeled Christ-likeness for us, for those that have paved the way. Father, I'm so encouraged by those in here as I'm preaching this message and looking at faces Examples of godly fathers and husbands and wives, godly singles, those who desire and long for more of Christ-likeness. God, thank you for blessing our church with so many who are on the right path and pursuing the right prize. We pray, Lord, that you would guard our church, protect our church from imposters, from people who may, might talk a big game but don't live as Christ has commanded. Help us, Lord, with humility and gentleness and patience direct people to the true gospel, the only power for change, the only pathway to perfection is through Christ. May we as a church, Grace Church Monterey Bay, be faithful to proclaim that and live that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.